I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Waller. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Happened, y'all. Yeah, uh, this this um, this election week has been about the longest year of my life. It was the most twenty twenty thing that's happened in this Very horrific stressful. year, man. But, but it's over now. Um, despite what some people say, but it's over, y'all. It's over now. Um, which doesn't mean <sighs> we get to completely ignore everything that's going on by no. any stretch of the imagination. If, for example, you are listening to this from Georgia, uh, you got a big fight coming up. Um, please reach out and let us know if there's anything we can do to help. Also, hashtag Stacey Abrams for being a badass motherfucker. Like, Stacey Abrams, black women all around this country, indigenous people... People of color, seriously, um, you turned it up and we wouldn't be here without your tenacity and like drive. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, on uh, a on a completely uh, yeah. nonpartisan or or bipartisan note, um, congratulations to everyone. Um, this was huge voter turnout this year. Fuck yeah. Everybody worked their asses off to make sure that that they got out and made their voices heard. Um, it was it was a big one. It was a big one. And it's it was... our first female vice president <laughs> and person of color and immigrant board. And it's just like, I was weeping. I, I cried during their speeches. Like, I hadn't cried in a while because, like, it's so much pent up in everything. And, um... Kamala started talking about, and I just started, it just started coming out. Ken was sitting across from me at the couch and like, I wasn't making noise. It wasn't like a, like it just, I just started like the floodgates open man, and like, they didn't really stop. So, uh, congrats to America and to our listeners around the world who've been watching. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. So that but, was a big tension release. There was... Um, a little bit of uh, bad news as yeah. one of the the greatest mustaches in television history did pass away as we're recording this yesterday. Yeah. Or Alex Trebek. What a badass. We watched his 2020 special last night and I cried at least three or four times. So it's yeah. been a week of... Uh, of running high emotions. High emotions, but... They were their high emotions for good and their high emotions for release and their high emotions for the loss of a really badass dude, man. Yeah. So really just genuinely great human being. Go watch some SNL uh, Celebrity Jeopardy for some joy. And uh, he actually appears on one of the episodes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't know what else. I mean, wear your fucking mask, y'all, because, the yeah, just wear yeah. a mask, please. It's not a political thing. Just wear your mask. But if you're listening to this, you probably are, or do you agree with that? <laughs> um, 
It is still Movember. Yeah, it is. We are still uh, uh, hoping to raise some money for that. I am still attempting to grow in my mustache, which at the moment, I just did a, a trim of the cheeks and chin. Um, so at the moment, it kind of looks like I'm growing fruit mold on the on my upper lip. <laughs> It's a very it's a very wispy teenager kind of mustache. It is very much a mustache of like a pubescent teen is yep. what it looks like. But it looks like a pubescent teen has been growing it for like three months. Instead of six days six or whatever days. it is. Yeah. So um we will post updates. Uh he's been taking a picture every day on his November uh site to raise money. Um, and we will share that on the website as well. So on that note, mm-hmm. we have uh, some fun facts to share today. I should say I have some fun facts to share today. But since we're doing an entire month of Agatha Christie Poirot, uh, it I decided it didn't make sense to do another series of Agatha Christie or Poirot fun facts. <gasps> so here are some fun facts about mustaches. Oh my God, yay! <laughs> Historically... It seems that the prevalence of mustaches and facial hair in general, but but mustaches specifically, tends to rise and fall according to the saturation of the marriage market. Wait, what? Mm-hmm. Um, according to a study performed by British researcher Nigel Barber. Of course, um, his name is Nigel. Of course, his name is Nigel. That's so British. Uh, so, using uh, annual... And his name's Barber, and he's talking about the mustache? Oh, yep. man. Uh, so, <laughs> using annual data on British beard fashions extending from 1842 through 1971, it was found that mustaches facial hair in general, but specifically mustaches, are more frequent when there is a good supply of single men of marriageable age. In other words, lots of competition means men grow out mustaches to attract wives. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to lie. Um, my dad had a banging awesome mustache when he got married. Uh, they also wore blue powdered suits. Um, he looks like the epitome of the 70s so he was in that study because my parents were in that time period so uh yeah mustache yeah uh conversely uh during periods of higher illegitimacy rates or periods of time when there aren't many um marriages happening uh you tend to see more clean-shaven men that is so weird now, correlation now, correlation does not necessarily imply yeah. causation, but that is an interesting correlation. Also, interestingly, uh, there is a correlation between um, periods of time when there is facial hair and periods of time when women are wearing uh, long dresses. However, that correlation got a little more confusing and, and convoluted, so I decided not to dive too deep into that. Interesting. Yeah. So it's like... People, I, I mean, I feel like that's very much a men trying to be super masculine and women trying to be super feminine in like a way to connect and yeah. be like, I'm on the market. I'm looking for a mate. Yeah. The, the and study... whether that's of the same sex or the uh, uh, opposite, you're, yeah. you're like, oh, you got the testosterone. Yeah. That, that same study also talked about um, men during these periods when they're growing facial hair as also tending to be much more concerned with um, their physical musculature and looking more masculine. Huh. 
All right, Burt Reynolds, I see you. I know what you up to. <laughs> uh, the earliest documented usage of mustaches without a beard, so just the mustache alone, can be traced back to Iron Age Celts. Okay. Uh, according to an account from a Roman historian, and this is obviously a translation, but the English translation is... <clears throat> The Gauls are tall of body with rippling muscles and white of skin, and their hair is blonde, and not only naturally so, for they also make it their practice by artificial means to increase the distinguishing color which nature has given it, <coughs> for they are always washing their hair in lime water. Oh! And they pull it back from the forehead to the nape of the neck with the result that their appearance is like that of satyrs and pans, since the treatment of their hair makes it so heavy and coarse that it differs in no respect from the mane of horses. Some of them shave their beard, but others let it grow, and the nobles shave their cheeks, but let their mustache grow until it covers the mouth. What so, the actual fuck? So, uh, so Celtic nobles had they, ponytails and mustaches, and they dyed their hair. Yeah. So Celtic. They found they found no, natural natural um, found a way to, ways to bleach their hair out to make it blonder. So they were the first metrosexuals. <laughs> they were like, "Let's get our hair did and pull it back and do a nice man bun, and uh, we're gonna." trim and like groom ourselves to make us look the most masculine sexy ever bleach blonde hipsters bleach blonde hipsters <laughs> um, you guys thought this was a new thing boom celts have you <laughs> uh uh so during the medieval period many welsh leaders would uh fashion only a mustache including uh edward prince of wales okay uh in Western culture, the mustache reached its uh, peak of popularity in the 1880s and 90s. Other cultures have, obviously different cultures across the, the world have... Different um, timelines. Different, different timelines and see mustaches differently. Um, in many 20th century Arab countries, mustaches were associated, are associated with power. Um, beards are associated with Islamic traditionalism. Uh, and clean shavenness or uh, lack of facial hair in these same countries is associated with liberalism and uh, uh, secular tendencies. Progressiveness. All right. Um, in one study done uh, on how facial hair is perceived, mm -hmm. it was determined that the presence of facial hair uh, tends to make a man be perceived as older. This is not surprising. Mm -hmm. What was a little surprising is that the presence or absence of facial hair had more effect on how people saw a man's age than uh, baldness. Interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. To um, all my friends who are, have lost their hair or have chosen to just shave it off and say, fuck it, there you go. <laughs> now you just need... A clean-shaven face. Another, another interesting tidbit. Um, mustaches, as compared to beards, tend to make men be perceived as less socially mature and often more aggressive. Well, that I, I mean, it's like I have to prove something. Yeah, so. I did. Um, I didn't take a note on this, but I did read a thing that um, apparently, in general, in um, uh, Western culture today. 
it has been determined that uh, that what people find attractive in men um, is, are those that clearly can grow facial hair but choose not to. In other words, stubble and or five o'clock shadow. Uh-huh. Yeah. Next, we'll do a, a bit on uh, the phenomenon of the female mustache. <laughs> As they get older, <laughs> something we all have to get to look forward to. <laughs> um, yeah, so there are actually there have been a shocking number of studies done into mustaches, but um, I think that's that's all I want to um, read about now. Fab. Uh, you, listener, can check out my own mustache progress and donate money to help fight prostate cancer, testicular cancer, and mental illness and suicide by visiting movember.com slash m slash Ken Sandberg. And uh, once again, M M as in, well, M as in male, but yes, M as in monkey. Um, (laughs) And uh, once again, I will, uh, I'll put a link to that. I'll, I'll copy the link to that in the description of this episode. Yeah. All right. That was fun. I like, I like that. Like, Last, last week I focused on Poirot's mustache facts, and this week we just got some general mustache facts. Just some facts. general mustaches. Great. Uh, so, on to the story? Yeah, what am I reading? So, um, this week, I hope you, listener, are as excited as I am, because this week Heather is going to take her first crack at Oh my Poirot. god, I hadn't even thought of it. Oh god. <laughs> oh um, no. And the story you will be reading is... The Disappearance of Mr. Davenheim. That is the most British name of all time, along with Nigel. I hope his first name is Nigel. Nigel Davenheim. All right, right, so let's start the fire. I'm scared. The Disappearance of Mr. Davenheim by Agatha Christie. Prop. (laughs) We are off to a good start. God damn it. Things are going well. Oh no. But just, I'm glad we didn't do this after wine and we're just on coffee. The disappearance of Mr. Davenheim. Poirot and I were expecting our old friend Inspector Jap of Scotland Yard to tea. We were sitting round the tea table awaiting his arrival. Poirot had just finished carefully straightening the cups and saucers which our landlady was in the habit of throwing rather than placing on the table. <laughs> Damn! <Moody laughs> maybe landlady. She, maybe she shouldn't work there anymore. <laughs> she just like... <laughs> I hope they don't have nice hope, stuff. Yeah, I was just thinking, what if what if it's nice teacups? Well, that's... I feel like that's very uh, um, the Mad Hatter's tea party situation. It's smash, like, boom, bang. Smash! <laughs> I uh, crush your things. I crush. Uh, throwing rather than placing on the table. He had also breathed heavily on the metal teapot and polished it with a silk handkerchief. The oh. kettle was on the boil and a small enamel saucepan beside it contained some thick, sweet chocolate, which was more to Poirot's palate than what he described as your English poison. (laughs) (laughs) The tea. (laughs) Poirot, the Belgian, of course, wants his chocolate. I want my hot chocolate. He's like, give me some hot chocolate. You can drink your stupid tea. (laughs) And then he was assaulted by all the Englishmen. I like both. Uh, 
A sharp rat-tat sounded below, and a few minutes afterwards, Jap entered briskly. I hope I'm not late, he said as he greeted us. To tell the truth, I was yarning with Miller, the man who's in charge of the Davenheim case. Yarning? Yarning? Like, yarning, as in, like, was he, like, discussing or uh, going back and forth? I've never heard that term. They were just sitting there knitting, talking about the case. Ah, uh, yarn, as in to tell a yarn, to spin a yarn, tell a long or implausible story. Oh, okay, so they were, uh, they were, um... Spitballing? Spitballing. They were throwing out their, their theories. Yeah, cool. All right. I pricked up my ears. For the last three days, the papers had been full of the strange disappearance of Mr. Davenheim, senior partner of Davenheim and Salmon. <laughs> Salmon. <laughs> what a fun last name. Davenheim and Salmon. All right. So they are a uh, law firm that specializes in fishing rights. Fishing rights. Fishing protections. Uh uh, giving you your uh, license to go catch the fishes. Yeah, which is probably super important in an island nation. That's very true. I love some fish. All right, Mr. Salmon. I, I already suspect him because... You suspect Mr. Salmon? Well, of course, or someone of the salmon breed. <laughs> I don't know what that means. We haven't even gotten to Poirot's accent. Davenheim and Salmon, the well-known bankers and financiers. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. uh, I thought they were lawyers as well. Bankers, lawyers, nah. <laughs> potato, it's all, potato. It's all money. Well-known bankers and financiers. On Saturday last, he had walked out of his house and had never been seen since. I looked forward to extracting some interesting details from Jap. I should have thought, I remarked, that it would be almost impossible for anyone to disappear nowadays. Poirot moved a plate of bread and butter the eighth of an inch and said sharply, Be exact, my friend. <laughs> Where am I from? I think that was a little Greek. Yeah. Be exact, my friend. <laughs> that was a little Italian. That was a little Italian. Opa, throw the teacups. Hey! Very, very Mediterranean, regardless. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I think Poirot might just be English, like as an American mind. Let me try. Uh, so French, what's the French? Well, the, uh, uh, the is, big is, thing about the French, French is, is the R's. R's. Because the R's, they uh, happen R's. in the throat. R. Be exact, my friend. Be exact, friend. my friend. Friend. My friend. friend. There you go. I feel like I'm making fun of people. Well, <laughs> don't do that then. Oh, God. Be exact, my friend. What do you mean by disappear? So this is... Poirot's just going to have an indistinguishable uh, European dialect. I apologize to all Europeans <laughs> in advance. What do you mean by disappear? To what class of disappearance are you referring? Are disappearances classified and labeled then? I laughed. <laughs> Jap smiled also. Poirot frowned at both of us. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly they are. They fall into three categories. First, I don't know what this accent is. I'm, he's English. He's American. 
Great. But certainly they are. They fall into three categories. First, and most common, the voluntary disappearance. Second, hmm. the much-abused loss-of-memory case. That's so weird, because Agatha Christie just disappeared and doesn't know where she was. Have we discussed that in Fun Facts We yet? have not. Great. That'll be, coming up. That'll be coming up soon. If you didn't know, Agatha Christie disappeared for 10 days, and there is no explanation. We'll talk about that next week. I love that she just wrote that into one of her own stories. Abused loss of memory case. And I don't think it's happened to her yet. <gasps> I, I'd have to check the timeline. Ooh, fun. Okay. I'd have to check the timeline. Okay. Second, the much abused loss of memory case. Rare, but occasionally genuine. Third, murder. And more or less successful disposal of the body. <laughs> Do you refer to all three as possible of execution? Very nearly so, I should think. You must lose your own memory, but someone would be sure to recognize you, especially in the case as well known as a man like Davenheim. Then bodies can't be made to vanish into thin air. Sooner or later, they must turn up, concealed in lonely places or in trunks. Murder will out. In the same way, the absconding clerk or the domestic defaulter is bound to be run down in these days of wireless telegraphy? Telegraphy? How do you say that word? I would assume telegraphy. I've never Um, heard that. Telegraphy. Wireless telegraphy. Yeah, like... They're, like, they're, he's bragging they're about how technologically advanced they are. I know, it's amazing. <laughs> I love that they're like, there's no way someone could disappear these days with all this stuff. With and here we are in we 2020 have. with like, we can talk to the fucking moon, like space station, but <laughs> people just disappear and they're just gone. Wireless telegraphy. He can be headed off from foreign countries, ports and railway stations are watched and As for concealment in this country, his features and appearance will be known to everyone who reads a daily paper. He's up against civilization. Mon ami, says (laughs) Warrell. Because he's American. So he's not just American, he's Brad Pitt in Inglorious Bastards. Oh my god, he's so fun. That movie, (laughs) I love that movie. First of all, they punch and beat the shit out of Nazis, which is awesome. Um... But, like, Brad Pitt's character is so ridiculous. Bone journo. Bone And that's, in my version of Poirot Investigates, Brad Pitt is playing Poirot. You're welcome, ladies. I'd watch it. Um, someone find me a picture of Brad Pitt with a ridiculous mustache. Um, I'm pretty sure he has a ridiculous mustache in Inglorious Bastards. No, I mean ridiculous oh, okay. mustache. Okay, like, okay, like, not, spinny. Not, not a little, not a little military approved mustache. I mean a, a Poirot mustache. Got it. Bring it. Brad Pitt, we just found your next role. I mean, you're gonna have to compete with Kenneth Branagh, but, you know. All right. Mon ami, said Poirot. <laughs> you make one error. You do not allow for the fact that a man who has decided to make away with another man, or with himself in a figurative sense, might be that rare machine, a man of method. He might bring intelligence, talent, a careful calculation of detail to the task. 
And then I do not see why he should not be successful in baffling the police force. But not you, I suppose, said Jap good-humorously, winking at me. He couldn't baffle you, eh, Monsieur Poirot? Poirot endeavored with a marked lack of success to look modest. <laughs> <laughs> this... Okay, here's my prediction. Okay. This is about to turn into um uh into Pygmalion. <laughs> they're going they're It's it's going to be a bet. Oh, I'll bet I can I can uh, uh I can solve this case. And um, Jap is Eliza Doolittle. <laughs> no, the missing person is Eliza Doolittle. Uh, Jap is Pickering. Okay, got it. Yeah, I like this. All right. Okay. I hope there's a musical number. <laughs> You said Pygmalion. I always go to my fair lady. I, yeah. Uh, do, 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 do. Poirot endeavored with a marked lack of success to look modest. Me also. Why not? It is true that I approach such problems with an exact science, a mathematical precision, which seems, alas, only too rare in the new generation of detectives. <laughs> Jap grinned more widely. I don't know, he said. Miller, the man who is on this case, is a smart chap. You may be very sure he won't overlook a footprint or a cigar ash or a crumb even. He's got eyes that see everything. So, mon ami, said Poirot, has the London sparrow. But all the same, I should not ask the little brown bird to solve the problem of Mr. Daffingham. <laughs> Come now, monsieur, you're not going to run down the value of details as clues. By no means. These things are all good in their way. The danger is they may assume undue importance. Some details are insignificant. One or two are vital. It is the brain, the little gray cells, he tapped his forehead, on which one must rely. The senses mislead. One must seek the truth within, not without. You don't mean to say, Monsieur Poirot, that you would undertake to solve a case without moving from your chair, do you? That is exactly what I do mean, granted the facts were placed before me. I regard myself as a consulting specialist. Now, we already have read uh, Agatha Christie where he literally solves a case from his bed. So, here we go. That one wasn't voluntary. He was laid up he, sick. He was but sick. But, you know, he's like, fuck it. We know he can do yep. it. Jap slapped his knee. Hanged if I don't take you at your word. Bet you a fiver that you can't lay your hand, or rather tell me where to lay my hand on Mr. Davingham, dead or alive, before a week is out. And Ken is doing a happy dance because he predicted that we are now in Pygmalion, the Poirot story. <laughs> oh, God. Here we go. Poirot considered. ABN, mon ami. I accept. Le sport, it is the passion of you English. Now, the facts. On Saturday last, as is his usual custom, Mr. Davingham took the... 12.40 train from Victoria to Chingside, where his palatial country seat, the Cedars, is situated. 
After lunch, he strolled round the grounds and gave various directions to the gardeners. Everybody agrees that his manner was absolutely normal and as usual. After tea, he put his head into his wife's boudoir. Wow! <laughs> saying that he was going to stroll down to the village and post some letters. He added that he was expecting a Mr. Lowen on business. If he should come before he himself returned, he has to be shown into the study and asked to wait. Mr. Dabbingham then left the house by the front door, passed leisurely down the drive and out at the gate, and was never seen again. From that hour, he vanished completely. Pretty, very pretty, altogether a charming little problem, murmured Poirot. Proceed, my good friend. <laughs> I like Poirot's. And I'm hitting the R's super your, hard. Your American Poirot sounds like a British actor doing an American accent. Exactly. <laughs> well, because I'm trying to distinguish the voices since it's not French or anything close so that I can help our listeners. So when you hear a bad American accent, that's Poirot. Proceed, my good friend. About a quarter of an hour later, a tall, dark man with a thick black moustache rang the front doorbell and explained that he had an appointment with, with Mr. Davingham. I don't know if I should respect this man or suspect him because he has a dark black moustache. Uh, sounds Both? to me like he is trying to attract a wife and he is probably socially immature and a little aggressive. That's what I have heard in some circles. <laughs> He gave the name of Lowen, and in accordance with the banker's instructions, was shown into the study. Nearly an hour passed. Mr. Davingham did not return. Finally, Mr. Lowen rang the bell, and explained that he was unable to wait any longer, as he, much ca he must catch his train back to town. Mrs. Davingham apologized for her husband's absence, which seemed unaccountable, as she knew him to have been expecting the visitor. Mr. Lowen reiterated his regrets and took his departure. Well, as everyone knows, Mr. Davingham did not return. Early on Sunday morning, the police were communicated with, but could make neither head nor tail of the matter. Mr. Davingham seemed literally to have vanished into thin air. It's because he was abducted by aliens. Cool. Well, that's, that's one of the theories. Of Miss Agatha. <laughs> he had not been to the post office, nor had he been seen passing through the village. At the station, they were positive he had not departed by any train. His own motor had not left the garage. If he had hired a car to meet him in some lonely spot, it seems almost certain by this time, in view of the large reward offered for information, the driver of it would have come forward to tell us what he knew. True. There was a small race meeting in Ettenfield. Race meeting? Like, horse racing? Maybe. I hope it's not like... Never mind. <laughs> yeah. A race meeting is an occasion when a series of horse races are held at the same place, often during a period of several days. Oh. So typically when, when you see like horse races at, at tracks, yeah. you've got at least a whole day of races yeah. and you oh, go yeah. in and 
Go in and watch as as you choose. Yep. Yeah. It's and like so, watching a little league so like put, tournament. So you put <laughs> so you put your money on you know Daddy's little angel in the sixth race or whatever. <laughs> I put my money on Mister Davingham is dead. <laughs> in which race? Uh, the four thirty. <laughs> that's that's my question. Great. That's my that's my prediction. All right. Uh, true, there was a small race meeting in Ettenfield, five miles away, and if he had walked to that station, he might have passed unnoticed in the crowd. But since then, his photograph and a full description of him have been circulating in every newspaper, and nobody has been able to give any news of him. We have, of course, received many letters from all over England, but each clue so far has ended in disappointment. On Monday morning, a further sensational discovery came to light. Behind a portier... It's a French word, but Jap is saying it. Portier? P-O-R-T-I-E-R-E. Yep. Uh, a curtain hung over a door or doorway. Or perhaps a safe, as in this case. Yes. <laughs> Behind a portier in Mr. Davenheim's study stands a safe... And that safe has been broken into and rifled. That's never a good sign. The windows were fastened securely on the inside, which seemed to put an ordinary burglary out of the court. Unless, of course... Unless. Unless, of course, an accomplice within the house fastened them again afterward. On the other hand, Sunday having intervened, and the household being in a state of chaos, it is likely that the burglary was committed on the Saturday and remained undetected until Monday. Precisely, said Poirot dryly. It's in French, but he's American. Well, is he arrested, Mr. Lowen? Jap grinned. Not yet, but he's under pretty close observation. Poirot nodded. What is taken from the safe? Have you any idea? We've been going into that with the junior partner at the firm and Mr. Davingham. And Mrs. I was like, are you talking to Mr. Davingham? Well, now we know where he is. This is really sloppy police work. (laughs) We know Jap's a little stupid, but... If you're questioning the corpse in a murder case and they're answering, maybe it's not a murder case. It might not be a murder case. Or a disappearance, for that matter. (laughs) We've been going into that with the junior partner of the firm and Mrs. Davingham. Davenheim? Davenheim. I've forgotten how to say the lead character's name. And Mrs. Davingham. Apparently, there was a considerable amount in bearer bonds and a very large sum in notes, owing to some large transaction having been just carried through. There was also a small fortune in jewellery. All Mrs. Davenheim's jewels were kept in the safe. The purchasing of them had become a passion with her husband of late years, and hardly a month passed when he did not make her a present of some rare and costly gem. Altogether a good haul, said Poirot thoughtfully. Now, what about Lowen? That Is sounds it... important. Yeah. That he just randomly started buying a bunch of jewelry. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that sounds... I think that's some sketchy shit right there. That sounds sketchy. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's like, jewelry darling? She's like, oh my God, you used to get me a sweater and a pair of socks. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> oh, a scarf. Oh, thanks, sweetie. Now it's Dime. rubies, and, rubies yeah. and emeralds every other weekend. This is amazing. Whatever could have happened. Definitely not anything sketchy. <laughs> well, okay. Altogether a good haul. Uh, now, what about Lowen? Is it known what his business was with Mr. Dabbingham that evening? Well, the two men were apparently not on very good terms. Lowen is a speculator in a quite a small way. Nevertheless, he has been able once or twice to score a coup off of Davenheim in the market, though it seems very seldom, or actually, they've never met. It was a matter concerning some South American shares which led the banker to make his appointment. Had Davingham interests in South America, then? I believe so. Mrs. Davingham... Davingham? Davingheim? Davenheim? Davenheim. I don't think there's a G in it. It says <laughs> Davenheim. It's not Daving anything. <laughs> Have Mr. Davenheim... Davenheim... And it's the going from the American to the British that's fucking me up. Just call him Mr. D. Had... The big D. <laughs> Poirot's saucy. Does the big D have interest in South America? Well, traditionally. Yeah. <laughs> Going to Brazil. <laughs> Had Davingham interests in South America then? I believe so. Mrs. Davingham happened to mention that he spent last autumn in Buenos Aires. What's new, Buenos Aires? Mr. Davingham's here, and there's going to be some sketchy shit. Let's just keep reading. Any trouble in his home life? Were the husband and wife on good terms? I should say his domestic life was quite peaceful and uneventful. Mrs. Davingham is a pleasant, rather unintelligent woman. Quite a non-entity, I think. Oh, she, it's her. Is she, is she a redhead with actor training? I hope she's an actor with with uh, an actor with red hair, because clearly she has been discounted, and that means she did some shit right here. Then we must not look for the solution of the mystery there. Had he any enemies? He had plenty of financial rivals, and no doubt there are many people whom he had got the better of who bear him no particular goodwill, but there was no one likely to make away with him, and if they had, where is the body? Exactly, as Hastings says, bodies have a habit of coming to light with fatal persistency. That's true. By the way, one of the gardeners says he saw a figure going round to the side of the house towards the rose garden. The long French window of the study opens onto the rose garden, and Mr. Davenheim frequently entered and left the house that way. But the man was a good way off at work on some cucumber frames, and cannot say whether it was the figure of his master or not. Also, he cannot fix the time with any accuracy. It must have been before six, as the gardener ceased work at that time. He's too busy with his cucumbers. He's like, <laughs> I saw somebody, but uh, I was just doing I just my cucumber. Doing my, doing my veggies. Getting the cucumbers ready for the cucumber sandwiches. <laughs> I love cucumber sandwiches. Yum. And Mr. Davingham left... And, 
and Mr. Davingham left the house. About half past five or thereabouts. What lies beyond the rose garden? A lake. With a boathouse? Yes, a couple of punts are kept there. I suppose you're thinking of suicide, Monsieur Poirot? Well, I don't mind telling you that Miller's going down tomorrow expressly to see that piece of water dragged. That's the kind of man he is. Poirot smiled faintly and turned to me. Hastings, I pray you, hand me that copy of the Daily Megaphone. If I remember rightly, there is an unusually clear photograph there of the missing man. I rose and found the sheet required. Poirot studied the features attentively. Hmm, he murmured. Wears his hair rather long and wavy, full mustache and pointed beard, bushy eyebrows, eyes dark? Yes, hair and beard turning gray. The detective nodded. Well, Monsieur Poirot, what have you got to say to it all? Clear as daylight, eh? On the contrary, most obscure. The Scotland Yard man looked pleased. Which gives me great hopes of solving it, finished Poirot placidly. Eh? <laughs> eh? I find it a good sign when a case is obscure. If a thing is clear as daylight, oh, bien, I mistrust it. Someone has made it so. Jap shook his head and almost pityingly, well, each to their fancy. But it's not a bad thing to see your way clear ahead. I do not see, murmured Poirot. I shut my eyes and I think. <laughs> Jap sighed. Well, you've got a clear week to think in. And you will bring me any fresh developments that arise? The results of the labors of the hard-working and lynx-eyed Inspector Miller, for instance? Certainly, that is in the bargain. Seems a shame, doesn't it, said Jap to me as I accompany him to the door. Like robbing a child. <laughs> I could not help agreeing with a smile. I was still smiling as I re-entered the room. Eh bien, said Poirot immediately. You make fun of Papa Poirot. It is not so. <laughs> he needs to call himself Papa Poirot. You hey. making fun of Daddy? Now I'm so happy he's American. Cause hey, you're making fun of Daddy, huh? You making fun of Daddy Poirot, eh? <laughs> Boom! Hastings and Poirot have a weird relationship in this one. You make fun of Papa Poirot. Now Poirot is just a Charlie Brown adult. Yep. <laughs> so we won't know how anything happens. You got that at home? Okay. Well, that was a good story. <laughs> Uh, it was a nice, succinct wrap-up yeah, at the it end was. there. It's like he just discovered it and it's done. Yeah. It's over. But you'll never know. ABN, said Poirot immediately. You make fun of Papa Poirot, is it not so? He shook his finger at me. You do not trust his gray cells? Ah, do not be confused. Let us discuss this little problem 
incomplete as yet, I admit, but already showing one or two points of interest. The lake, I said significantly. <laughs> and even more than the lake, the boathouse. I looked sidewise at Poirot. He was smiling in his most inscrutable fashion. <clears throat> I felt that for the moment, it would be quite useless to question him further. We heard nothing of Jap until the following evening, when he walked in at about nine o'clock. I saw at once by his expression that he was bursting with news of some kind. Eh bien, my friend, remarked Poirot. All goes well. But do not tell me that you have discovered the body of Mr. Davenheim or in your lake, because I shall not believe you. We haven't found the body, but we did find his clothes. The identical clothing he was wearing that day. What do you say to that? I hope he says there must be a naked man running around. <laughs> <laughs> his clothes. Where am I? Oh, your French accent's getting better. I know. <laughs> <laughs> We haven't found the body, but we did find his clothes. The identical clothes he was wearing that day. What do you say to that? Any other clothes missing from the house? No, his valet was quite positive on that point. The rest of his wardrobe is intact. There's more. We've arrested Lowen. One of the maids, whose business is to fasten the bedroom windows, declares she saw Lowen coming towards the study through the rose garden about a quarter past six. That would have been about ten minutes before he left the house. What does he himself say to that? Denied, first of all, that he had ever left the study, but the maid was positive, and he pretended afterward that he had forgotten just stepping out the window to examine unusual species of rose. Rather a weak story. And there's fresh evidence against him come to light. Mr. Davenham always wore a thick gold ring set with a solitaire diamond on the one finger on his right hand. Well, that ring was pawned in London on Saturday night by a man called Billy Kellett. <laughs> He's already known to the police, did three months last autumn for lifting an old gentleman's watch. It seems he tried to pawn the ring at no less than five different places. Succeeded at the last one. Well, he succeeded at the last one because that was the last one he went to because he succeeded. Yep. <laughs> come on. Come on. Come on, Jeff. Things Go are always in the last place I look. Well, it'd be pretty stupid to keep looking after you found it. <laughs> Durr. He succeeded at the last one, got gloriously drunk on the proceeds, assaulted a policeman, and was run in in consequence. I went to Bow Street with Miller and saw him. He's sober enough now, and I don't mind admitting we pretty well frightened the life out of him, hinting he might be charged with murder. This is his yarn, and a very queer one it is. Now we know what yarn means. He was at Edenfield Races on Saturday, though I dare say scarf pins was his line of business, rather than betting scarf pins. Ooh. Stealing like, scarf Stealing pins? scarf pins off of scarves? <laughs> Is that a term for, like, I'm I'm guessing it means stealing scarf pins and shawl pins, because they're the, those, like... Oh, they're like the brooches. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
It doesn't. You didn't see anything. Uh, pull up scarf pins and and you get pictures for people selling brooches and scarf pins and shawl okay. things. Okay. So he probably takes them from people and then resells and them. Pawns them. The, like he pawned the ring. He was at the Edenfield races on Saturday, though I dare say scarf pins is his line of business rather than betting. Anyway, he had a bad day and was down on his luck. He was trampling along the road to Chingside and sat down in a ditch to rest just before he got into the village. A few minutes later, he noticed a man coming along the road to the village. Dark-complexioned gent with a big mustache. One of them city toffs is his description of the man. Kellett was half-concealed by the road by a heap of stones. Just before he got abreast of him, the man looked quickly up and down the road, and seeing it apparently deserted, he took a small object from his pocket and threw it over the hedge. Then he went on towards the station. Now, the object he had thrown over the hedge had fallen with a slight chink, which aroused the curiosities of the human derelict in the ditch. <laughs> the human derelict in the ditch. I want to see that Harry Potter. <laughs> the human derelict in the ditch. Harry I Potter think... and the human derelict in the ditch. <laughs> I think the human derelict in the ditch is um, like a Beckett play or something <laughs> like that. Maybe Brecht. Yeah, it, oh yeah, Brecht, and there's some weird music. Yeah, very dissonant. The human derelict in the ditch. I think it's a Brecht play. Somebody write Brecht musical uh, music by Kurt Vile. Uh, Craig, if you're listening, I want to hear the human derelict in the ditch as written by Brecht, as written by Craig Kelberg, <laughs> or anyone else who wants to accept that challenge. All right, uh, the human derelict in the ditch. He investigated, and after a short search, discovered the ring. That is Kellett's story. It's only fair to say that Lowen denies it utterly, and of course, the word of a man like Kellett can't be relied upon in the slightest. It's within the bounds of possibility that he met Davenheim in the lane and robbed and murdered him. Poirot shook his head. Very improbable, mon ami. <laughs> he had no means of disposing of the body. It would have been found by now. Secondly, the open way in which he pawned the ring makes it unlikely that he did murder to get it. Thirdly, your snake thief is rarely a murderer. Fourthly, as he has been in prison since Saturday, it would be too much of a coincidence that he is able to give so accurate a description of Lowen. Jap nodded. I don't say you're not right, but all the same, you won't take a jury to take much note of a jailbird's evidence. What seems odd to me is that Lowen couldn't find a cleverer way of disposing of the ring. Poirot shrugged his shoulders. Well, after all, if it were found in the neighborhood, it would be argued that Davenheim himself had dropped it. But why remove it from the body at all? I cried. Oh, that's... Oh, Hastings, that's like Hastings the first time he's finally has a spoken. line. But why remove it from the body at all? I cried. <laughs> Where's Hastings from? I don't know. Which traveling circus is Hastings working for? <laughs> Sounds like a character on Spongebob. But why remove the ring from the body at all? I'm going back to the unbirthday tea party. <laughs> He's the Mad Hatter. Uh, but why remove it from the body at all? I, <laughs> I don't know where he's from. That, that was very Dowager Countess all in a huff. 
But why you remove it from the body at all? It's, uh, Hastings is played by uh, Maggie Smith in this production. By a very huffy Maggie Smith. <laughs> yes. But why remove it from the body at all, I cried. There must be a reason for that, said Jap. Do you know that just beyond the lake, a little gate leads out onto a hill, and not three minutes' walk brings you to, what do you think, a lime kiln? Good heavens, I cried. You mean that the lime which destroyed the body would be powerless to affect the metal of the ring? Exactly. So it's like, dis like stuff that dis like disintegrates a body. A lime kiln. A lime kiln is used to produce quicklime through the calcination of limestone. This reaction takes place at 900 degrees Celsius, but the temperature is around 1,000 degrees Celsius. Oh my God. Uh. So yeah, I mean they're basically gonna Breaking Bad. Yeah. <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna disintegrate the body in the lime kiln, but it won't melt. But that would not melt gold. Is basically what he just said. So maybe that's why the ring was removed. <clears throat> if that's I where... have other theories. I do too, but that's the where their brains are yep. at least. Good heavens, I cried. You mean that the lime which destroyed the body would be powerless to affect the metal of the ring? Exactly. It seems to me, I said, that that explains everything. What a horrible crime. By common consent, we both turned and looked at Poirot. He seemed lost in reflection, his brow knitted, as though with some supreme mental effort. I felt at last his keen intellect was asserting itself. What would his first words be? We were not long left in doubt. With a sigh, the tension of his attitude relaxed, and turning to Jap, he asked, Have you any idea, my friend, whether Mr. and Mrs. Davingham occupied the same bedroom? Uh-oh. Because, <laughs> um... like, that, at the time, that was still a thing. Right, right, right. separate bedrooms. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think of the wording. <clears throat> when they said, uh, did his, her boudoir, her, her boudoir. So they have separate bedrooms. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm guessing we're yeah. going to get an answer momentarily. The question seems so ludicrously inappropriate that for a moment, <laughs> <laughs> I love how weird people were about married couples like forever. How dare you ask about their sleeping arrangements? Oh my God. How dare you, you ask about saucy French American <laughs> dirty man. Like, okay. People. The question seemed so ludicrously inappropriate that for a moment we both just stared in silence. Then Jap burst into a laugh. Good lord, Monsieur Poirot, I thought you were coming out with something startling. As to your question, I'm sure I don't know. You could find out, asked Poirot with curious persistence. Oh, certainly, if you really want to know. Merci, mon ami. I would be obliged if you would make a point of it. Jap stared at him for a few minutes longer, but Poirot seemed to have forgotten us both. <laughs> the detective shook his head sadly at me and murmured, Poor old fellow. War has been too much for him. <laughs> Gently withdrew from the room. <laughs> Crazy old man. What kind of dumbass question is that? In shell shock? Damn. <laughs> 
As Poirot seemed sunk into a daydream, I took a sheet of paper and amused myself by scribbling notes upon it. My friend's voice aroused me. (laughs) (laughs) I love when my friend's voice arouses me. (laughs) I mean, sometimes a voice can be soothing and sometimes a voice is exciting. I wonder if he's going to ejaculate soon. And he's now aroused, so I wonder if he's going to ejaculate. I'm so excited. My friend's voice aroused me. He had come out of his reverie and was looking brisk and alert. Que fates vula monami? That was some. That was some quality Brad Pitt Italian right there. Que fait vula monami? What's that mean? Uh, what you so, doing? What's a fa- Can I have a favor or something? What you doing? What you up to? Yeah. What's up? What's up, my friend? What's up, my friend? I was jotting down what occurred to me in the main points of the interest in this affair. You become methodical at last, said Poirot (laughs) approvingly. (laughs) I concealed my pleasure. Shall I read them to you? He concealed his pleasure. He's aroused. Now he's concealed his pleasure. Now he's concealing his pleasure. Which, in fairness... If I was hanging out with my friend and I started getting aroused by, his voice, by, their, by, by said friend's voice. voice, I would probably cross my legs. Well, he's sitting at a desk, so he's got that to conceal, to conceal his pleasure. Shall I read them to you? By all means. I cleared my throat. One, all the evidence points to Lowen having been the man who forced the safe. Two, he had a grudge against Davenheim. Davenheim, Davenheim, Davenheim. The big D. The big <laughs> two. He had a grudge against the big D. Three. He lied in his first statement that he had never left the study. Four. If you accept Billy Kellett's story as true, Lowen is unmistakably implicated. I paused. Well, I asked, for I felt that I had put my finger on all the vital facts. Poirot looked at me pityingly, shaking his head very gently. Mon ami, but it is what you have not the gift. It is that you have not the gift. Mon ami, but it is not that you have, but it is that you have, oh my God. Mon ami, but it is that you have not the gift. See, this is where it makes sense for Poirot to be Belgian and not American. Mon ami, but it is that you have not the gift. Mon ami, but it is that you have not the gift. The important detail, you appreciate him never. (laughs) Also, your reasoning is false. That's all I got. How? Let me take your four points. One, Mr. Lowen could not possibly know he would have had the chance to open the safe. He came for a business interview. He would not have known beforehand that Mr. Davenheim would have been absent posting a letter and that he would consequently be alone in the study. And he might have seized the opportunity, I suggested. And the tools? City gentlemen do not carry around house-breaking tools by the off chance, and one could not cut into that safe with a penknife. Well, what about number two? You say Lowen had a grudge against Mr. Davingham? Well, you mean it is he had once or twice got the better of him, and... Presumably those transaction were, transactions were entered into with the view of benefiting himself. 
In any case, you do not, as a rule, bear a grudge against a man who you have gotten the better of. It is more likely to be the other way around. Whatever grudge there might have been would have been on the Mr. D's side. <laughs> well, you cannot deny that he lied about never having left the study. No, but he may have been frightened. Remember, the missing man's clothes had just been discovered in the lake. Of course, as usual, he would have done better to speak the truth. And the fourth point? I grant you that. If Kellett's story is true, Lowen is undeniably implicated. That is what makes the affair so interesting. Then I did appreciate one vital fact. Perhaps. But you have entirely overlooked the two most important points. The ones that undoubtedly hold the clue to the whole matter. And pray, what are they? One, the passion which has grown upon Mr. Davenham. One, the passion which has grown upon Mr. D in the last few years for buying jewelry. Two, oh, you didn't you didn't want to go with the passion which has grown on the big D. <laughs> I absolutely do. <laughs> Cut. One. The passion that has grown upon the big D in the last few years for buying jewelry. <laughs> Two, his trip to Buenos Aires last autumn. Poirot, you are joking. I am serious. Ah, sacred thunder, but I hope Jap will not forget my little commission. <laughs> but the detective entered into the spirit of the joke had remembered it so well that a telegram was handed to Poirot about eleven o'clock the next day. At his request, I opened it and read it out loud. Husband and wife have occupied separate rooms since last winter. Aha! cried Poirot. And now we are in mid-June. All is solved. I stared at him. You have no monies in the bank of Davenham and Salmon, mon ami. No, I said, wondering why. Because I should advise you to withdraw it before it is too late. <laughs> why, what do you expect? I expect a big smash in a few days, perhaps sooner. Which reminds me, we will return the... Com which reminds me, we will return the compliment of Depeche... Of a Depeche to Jap, like Depeche Mode. I imagine That's it's how it's the spelled. same word. We will return the compliment of a Depeche to Jap. Ah, Depeche. Um, a, a dispatch, a message, oh, message, or a letter. Which reminds me, we will return the compliment of a Depeche to Jap. A pencil, I pray you, and a form. Voila. Advise you to withdraw any money deposited with firm in question. That will intrigue him, the good Jap. His eyes will open wide. Wide! He will not comprehend in the slightest until tomorrow or the next day. I remain skeptical, but the morrow forced me to render tribute to my friend's remarkable powers. In every paper was a huge headline telling of the sensational failure of the Davenheim Bank. The disappearance of the famous financier took on a totally different aspect in the light of the revelation of the financial affairs of the bank. Before we were halfway through breakfast, the door flew open and Jap rushed in. Didn't even bother to knock. Nope. He's just like, ah! 
In his left hand was a paper. In his right was Poirot's telegram, which he banged down on the table in front of my friend. How did you know, Monsieur Poirot? How the blazes could you have known? Poirot smiled placidly at him. Ah, oh, mon ami, after your wire, it was a certainty. From the commencement, see you, it struck me that the safe burglary was somewhat remarkable. Jewels, ready money, bearer bonds, it's also conveniently arranged for whom? Well, the good Monsieur Davingham was of those who look after number one, as your saying goes. It seems almost certain that it was arranged for himself. Then his passion for late years of buying jewelry. How simple. The funds he embezzled, he converted into jewels, very likely replacing them in turn with paste duplicates. And so he put away in a safe under another name, a considerable fortune to be enjoyed all in good time when everyone has been thrown off the track. His arrangements completed, he makes an appointment with Mr. Lowen, who has been imprudent enough in the past to cross the great man once or twice, drills a hole in the safe, leaves orders that the guest is to be shown into the study and walks out of the house. Where? Poirot stopped and stretched out his hands for another boiled egg. He frowned. Is it really insupportable, he murmured, that every hen lays an egg in a different size? What symmetry can there be on the breakfast table? At last, they should sort them in dozens at the shop. Never mind the eggs, said Jap impatiently. Let him lay them square if they like. Tell us where our customer went when he left the cedars. That is, if you know. Eh bien, he went into his hiding place. Ah, this Monsieur Davingham. There may have been some malformation in his gray cells, but they were very first quality. Do you know where he is hiding? Certainly. It's most ingenious. Well, for Lord's sake, tell us then. Poirot gently collected every fragment of shell from his plate, placed them in the egg cup, and reversed the empty eggshell on top of them. The little operation concluded, he smiled on the neat effect, and then beamed affectionately on us both. Come, my friends, you are men of intelligence. Ask yourself the question I asked myself. If I were this man, where should I hide? Hastings, what do you say? Well, I said, I am rather inclined to think I'd not bolt at all. I'd stay in London in the heart of things, travel by tubes and buses. Ten to one, I'd never be recognized. There's safety in a crowd. Poirot turned inquiringly to Jap. I don't agree. It'd get clear away at once. That's the only chance. I would have had plenty of time to prepare things beforehand. I'd have a yacht waiting, steam up, and I'd be off on one of the most out-of-the-way corners of the world before the hue and cry began. We both looked at Poirot. What do you say, monsieur? For a moment he remained silent. Then a very curious smile flittered across his face. My friends... If I were hiding from the police, do you know where I should hide? In a prison. What? You are seeking Monsieur Davingham in order to put him in prison, so you never dream of looking to see if he may not already be there? What do you mean? You tell me Madame Davingham is not a very intelligent woman. 
Nevertheless, I think if you took her to the Bow Street and confronted her with the man Billy Kellett, she would recognize him. In spite of the fact that he has shaved his beard and mustache and those bushy eyebrows and has cropped his hair close, a woman nearly always knows her husband, though the rest of the world may be deceived. Billy Kellett? But he's known to the police! Did I not tell you Davingham was a clever man? He prepared his alibi long beforehand. He was not in Buenos Aires last autumn. He was creating the character of Billy Kellett. <laughs> doing three months so that the police should not have any suspicions when the time came. He was playing, remember, for a large fortune as well as liberty. It was worth while doing the thing thoroughly. Only, yes, Abian, after he had to wear a false beard and wig, had to make up as himself again, and to sleep with a false beard is not easy. It invites detection. He cannot risk continuing to share the chamber of Madame, his wife. You found out for me for the last six months, or ever since his supported return from Buenos Aires, he and Mrs. Davenham occupied separate rooms. That I was sure. Everything fitted in. The gardener who fancied he saw his master going round the side of the house was quite right. He went to the boathouse, donned his tramp clothes. <laughs> I always go to the boathouse when I want to don my tramp clothes. <laughs> it's the best place for tramping, really. I mean, gotta have a little boathouse and get all trampy and then, like, go about your business. Which you may be sure had been safely hidden from the eyes of his valet, dropped the others in the lake, and proceeded to carry out his plan of pawning the ring in an obvious manner, and then, assaulting a policeman, getting himself safely into the haven of Bow Street, where nobody would ever dream of looking for him. It's impossible, murmured Jap. Ask Madame, said my friend, smiling. The next day, a registered letter lay beside Poirot's plate. He opened it, and a five-pound note fluttered out. <laughs> My friend's brow puckered. Ah, sacre, but what shall we do with it? I have so much remorse, say pauvre jab. Ah, an idea. We will have a little dinner, we three. That consoles me. Oh, it was really too easy. I am ashamed. I, who would not rob a child. Miltonnerre. Mon ami, what have you that you laugh so heartedly? <laughs> the end. Oh, Poirot is rough in my brain. <laughs> you read it so much better. <laughs> Damn, see, I thought it was... I, I thought he was masquerading as, as uh, 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 Lowen. Lowen. Yeah, I absolutely thought it was Lowen. And, um, but then, but, but then, like, Lowen has to exist, so where is Lowen? He killed him, is the only way that would have worked. No, Lowen is still the real Lowen. Yeah. Oh, that he set him up. So what I was thinking... And then he escaped to Buenos yeah, Aires. Yeah, what, what I was yeah. thinking is that he, um, he, uh, along the road, like, 
He escaped, dropped his clothes off in the lake, shaved his beard, leaving only a mustache, styled his hair like Lowen's, and then started walking around the city dressed as Lowen and doing other suspicious things to make him look guilty, and then presumably would then shave the mustache and disappear wherever he needed. Like, uh, Um, I thought he he went to Buenos Aires again, and he'd set up like an offshore account. Yeah. Kind of thing. But clearly, same same idea. As different per road. usual, Agatha Christie throws us for a loop because she's just really fucking good at writing detective stories, like very much like Doyle. Well, well I done. always think I know where it's going, and then it goes somewhere else. Well, so. well done, Lady Christie. Oh, Lady Christie, you in in Chris, in Agatha Christie, we trust. Yeah. Yes. Well, that was fun. Um, uh, Brad Pitt, I've given you your next uh, role, so enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I feel like this would be the equivalent to that terrible Will Ferrell movie about Sherlock Holmes would be the Brad Pitt version of maybe it'd be funnier because, you know, it better be better. But like I'm just thinking of like how do you really destroy a like iconic character? Yeah. <laughs> you make but Poirot you do, American. You 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 cast you cast Brad Pitt as Poirot and you cast George Clooney as Hastings. <laughs> Oh, I'd watch the shit out of that. And then you cast oh, Christoph Waltz as Jap. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then you go ahead and just let Tarantino direct it and watch it <laughs> fall to pieces. Uh, see, I was going to go more like, uh, um, oh, my God, what's his name? Uh, directed like 40-Year-Old Virgin and... Uh, oh, Judd Apatow? Judd Apatow. <laughs> Judd Apatow directed it. Or Ben right. Affleck, bring Ben Affleck. In. Although, if you're gonna let, if Judd Apatow is gonna direct it, you then know, Paul Rudd's in he's it. he's he's gonna cast Paul Rudd as Poirot. I would watch the <laughs> shit out of that too. Or I I would actually love Poirot as Hastings because he does the dopey like kind of like what right. so well. Does, does that make Seth Rogen Poirot? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's lost too much weight. If he if he was still chubby, I think it would work. But Jonah Hill. Oh my God, no. <laughs> oh, um, um, uh, 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 what's his face? Uh, uh, uh Bear Claw. Oh, Josh Gad. Josh Gad. <laughs> Josh Gad is well. He's in he's, Murder in the Orient yeah, Express. Yeah, he's, he's already in Murder in the Orient Express. So he's already familiar with the like. Or uh, uh, uh Michael Sarah. Oh my God! Well, he, Michael Sarah always looks like a little boy. Yeah. Like, maybe when he ages into his adult self, even though he's like our age. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> Whatever. He could be Jap. He could be Jap. He could also be like one of the dudes that like is the crime, like whoever committed the crime or the person that had the crime happen to him, because he plays like the, the uh, um, victim very well. Yeah. Although I'm thinking for this one, because it's only the three of them are the only ones who appear. I'm thinking we've got like, I like Seth Rogen as Poirot, uh, Paul Paul Rudd Rudd. as Hastings, and Jason Segel as Jap. Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) Make it happen. Judd Apatow. I, I, I need it. I need it in my life. Thank you for bearing with us as we took that little uh, divergence at the end to cast this bizarre movie 
Um, <laughs> please do let us know your thoughts. Please uh, reach out and let us know what you think. Please go check out movember.com slash m slash Ken Sandberg to watch my mustache come in sad and pathetic and to uh, help raise money for you know, research and stopping cancer and, and the good stuff and um, fixing mental health problems and all of those lovely things. The things that need need fixing. Um, please like us, subscribe, share with friends. Um, yeah, and give us a review if you're on like i iPod. What's it? Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. iPodcast. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. There's places. Um, each each site's different. Uh, give us a five-star review or give us a, a actual like written review. Uh, that really helps us um, get more attention on these sites. And by you sharing it with someone you love, um, you're sharing laughter with them. Because yeah. laughter is the best medicine. Yeah. Unless you didn't like us, in which case you should share us with someone you hate. Cool. I mean, that's fine with me, too. As long as you're sharing and we're getting some listens, because that's how this game works. Uh, That's all the business I got. Yeah, you've you've been awesome. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much. Uh, This has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Now off to find the big D. (laughs) 